Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of Dice Exploder. Each week, we take a tabletop RPG mechanic and sing a sappy karaoke duet with it. Except this week, we're doing something completely different. This is a bonus episode. It's me, three of my friends, and we're going to look back at the year of 2023 in TTRPGs and a bunch of cool shit that we thought was great and we want to tell you all about. So today with me, I've got Aaron King first. Aaron, hey, who are you? Hi, I am a co-host of the RTFM RPG Book Club podcast. I'm a game designer in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the homes of role-playing games. And I said that like there's going to be a third thing, but that's it. That's all I do. (laughs) You're author of Reading the Apocalypse, which I refuse to stop shouting out in every single episode of this show that I record, apparently. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I love books. That's the third thing. Uh, I actually, I'm turning, my birthday's coming up soon every year. I release a zine of my favorite books. So that is out. That's free. You can find it. There you go. Audrey, you're next. Who are you? I am Audrey. I use she, they pronouns. I'm most commonly known as Lady Tabletop Online. I'm a game designer, game player, game runner, all game things. And also I'm a podcaster. So I'm glad to be here. And I don't usually sound like your Aunt Marge from the hair salon, but that's who you get today. Uh, yeah, post-Pax voice is my understanding. Yes, yes. it was a great time, but I have no voice left. Beautiful. And finally, Sharing, who are you? Um, I am Sharing Biswas. I am a game designer, writer, and interactive artist and professor of games based in New York City and other cool things. And you're my friend. I am also your friend, most importantly. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And throughout this episode, you're also going to hear from various other people from the Dice Exploder community and from just like my friends and past co-hosts and stuff who are going to pop in with just a short little shout out of something that they loved from this year. I'm going to play one of those right now. I don't know which one because not all of them have come in yet, but we're going to play one right now and then we'll come back. Hey, it's me, Ray, for Dice Exploder, and my end-of-the-year wrap-up. So Sam asked me to talk about one game, so I'm going to talk about Takuma, which is a, the R&D for your RPG by Golden Lasso Games' Kimmy Hughes. This is a tarot game that helps you build your adventure, your party, your holding pattern before you go on a campaign. But it's much more than that. It is a game that allows you to tell a whole-cloth story with interesting dynamics so long as you have a couple of things and the best part is you can play this with anyone i ran it for a group of 20 year old students of mine and i also ran it for a group of comic friends of mine and none of them really play rpgs too much so that in my opinion makes it super powerful so yeah check it out wow that person was really smart and their pick is really great And I can't wait to hear from more people like that as the episode goes on. So the way that this is going to work is we're going to go around. We each picked three games from the year that we really loved and want to shout out and talk about a little bit. We're going to go around and just talk about them. And then we'll have a couple other things after those are done. But to start us off, Aaron, what's your first game? My first game is Greed. It says it's designed by CXA and Gormengeist, which feels like fake names that criminals would use. And that (laughs) works great for me. Everything I'm bringing this year is like black and white, cruddy looking, which I say affectionately. 
and short because as cool as it is that RPGs are getting more recognition and becoming luxury items and really intricate, artistic, amazing items, I love the accessibility and the kind of disposability of zines and black and white work. Quick, get something out, give it to your friends. So greed is like that. Lots of grainy black and white stuff. You mine a strange realm for oil and feed it to a demon, and it keeps your tavern warm on a dying world. The classes are like Goblin and Bodkin, which is just kind of a jerk. And then John F. Kennedy is also a class that you can play. <laughs> that's that's the only thing I know about this game. It's the yeah. only page I've seen. Yeah, it's a great page. Person who kills the turkey on Thanksgiving, also one of the yes. classes. Holy fuck. This game, it's just like, I don't, there, it feels like a punk album, right? It feels yeah. like a 70s punk album that they just like smashed out in the studio one day. And I love that about it. There are weird psychic powers, lots of good random tables. And it's a kind of blades adjacent system. So if you've played that, you can almost jump right in. And there are, I normally am a big hater of like fiction at the start of a game. I bought a lot of World of Darkness books in the 90s and it scarred me. But this game has very cool like short sailor songs and like shanties and weird stuff like that throughout. And they're actually well written, which is somewhat rare for a role playing game. Gormangeist.h.io is where you can find it. I don't know. That's my pitch. That's what I love about it. One of the comments on it says it's postmodern Dadaism as a stand-up comedy routine in RPG format. If someone told me that, I wouldn't have bought it. (laughs) (laughs) It's I mean, there are aspects of like kind of pompous white poet William Burroughs beat stuff to it that is normally a turnoff to me if I just hear it described. But, you know, they deliver. This is a great scene. The voice of the itch page is just so strong, like right away. It's, it starts with, what is this? A TTRPG like mom used to make if it got left in a dumpster and auto-fermented. Like, yeah, I like know what this game is going to be from that sentence and i i didn't get the chance to read this before we recorded but like holy shit i i like need more of those sentences in my life i really like the design of this one too like it's kind of chaotic but i'm looking at like the attack effects table where it just starts to say obliteration over and over and over until it cuts off the page like that's such a good idea such a good way to communicate the way that attacking things works here It also says there are two casts of players. One is called the Baron. The other cast can just be called the players. Uh, (laughs) So it just carries this tone of this kind of like economically stressed apocalyptic fantasy all throughout the text. Right. Like Baron, like oil Baron, you know? Exactly. It's like making fun of the idea of having a GM in the first place, too. I I love that. Anything else you want to tell us about this before we uh, push onward? I found out that these people that make this game are like in undergrad right now, which oh makes my God. me holy right? shit. Makes me mad, but also happy. You know, the only other thing I want to say about this game is that they have a letterbox list about movies that in like inspired or like the same vibes as the game, and they have my favorite movie of all time on the list: The Good, the Bad, and the Weird, which mm. is like a Korean Western. 
And it's, yeah, that like kind of puts in perspective for me. I actually really hate it when people reference media when they're saying things, but I think that doing it through a list is really clever. They also offer examples of all the classes in history and in fiction. And for classes throughout fiction, the example for JFK, it just says he's real. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. Audrey, what's your first pick? My first pick of the year is Void 1680 AM by Ken Lowry, who also goes under the name Bannerless Games when he writes games. So it's a solo RPG. Big surprise. Two out of three of my picks are going to be solo RPGs because that's a lot of what I get to play now. But it is a game where you're playing like a late night radio show host of the titular Void 1680 AM station. You take calls from callers. It can basically be as like paranormal weird as you want it to be because the callers are fictional that's the part that kind of takes the place of like your journal entries versus the way a lot of like journaling games would have you saying oh i came to this place this game is saying this person called and this is kind of what their problem was and how i helped them it uses a standard deck of cards that that kind of guides like who your callers are and maybe what they're struggling with. So in terms of like mechanics, it's a pretty standard structure that you see in a lot of solo games. But I like the conceit of being a late night radio host. And also, if you record your game and you send it to Ken, he plays it on the actual Void 1680 AM station that he has, which is very cool. I I just, this one's very slick. It's presented as like the manual for someone who just got their like AM radio set up and here's how it works. And yeah, it has a legacy mode, which is something that I have like slowly become obsessed with over the course of this year. The idea that you could play a solo game for a second time and iterate on the elements that came up the first time and kind of continue the story or tell a different story because those elements exist. And I also just had, I mean, I had a great time. I got to talk to Ken a lot about the game because I played it on stream in November and he was my first caller because I did actually do like a live call-in show, which defeats a little bit the spirit of the game, but everybody was a great sport about it. And uh, we had a really good time. So yeah, it's, it was one that I picked up at Gen Con because it had been on my radar for a while. And so it was definitely a standout of the year for me. I just want to say explicitly, in case you didn't, like, you are also making a playlist as you play this game. Oh, yeah, yes. No, I didn't explicitly say that, but you are supposed to be using music because some of the prompts that are coming up are, like, a song that reminds you of when you were a kid or, like, a song that you'd listen to after a breakup and things like that. So you're making a playlist while you do it, which Ken also has a YouTube channel to play these on, but because of copyrighted music and stuff, often those get taken down, unfortunately. I tried to circumvent that by using only like royalty free and permission granted music from my friends for this. So we'll see how long it stays up there. Yeah, I've played this game two or three times now. And the one that I broadcast got pulled down extraordinarily quickly. Ken had to send me a illegal pirate Dropbox link recording of it so that I would have a copy. That's so funny. (laughs) This game is incredible. Like, I, I really love this thing. I love... The feeling of being a late night radio DJ feels so similar to me to the feeling of playing a solo game. Like you are engaged in this solo activity that is emotional and that is you're, you're trying to like put something out into the world and you don't know who's going to receive it or if anyone's going to receive it other than you. And like I... I I don't know if this is true for you, Audrey, playing a lot of solo games. I know a lot of people get a lot out of playing solo games just for themselves, but 
for me, when I'm playing a solo game, it's usually because I wish I was playing a multiplayer game. And yeah. that, that feeling of, I'm doing this just for myself, but like, what if I shared this journal with someone one day is so strong while playing it's solo games? Part of why I like the legacy playthrough of this, yeah. because to me, and it's not explicitly written this way in Void, but to me, the idea of a legacy game is that I can play a game and document my experience playing, and then I can hand it to a friend and say, you should also play this. Yeah. And they've got like my experience to build off of, or vice versa. Like I know that when... Uh, not to get like super tangential, but there's not a ton of like iterative or legacy solo games out there. And the ones that do kind of allow that play tend to be the ones that are really big and and like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, like you can do it in Ironsworn. That's the one everybody always cites. But the one that I really like is, is The Machine by Adira Slattery, because that one is explicitly like, I am going to mail this game to someone else when I have finished doing it. And they're going to do it and then mail it to someone else. So it's kind of like a, a chain mail thing. Um, and this game could be done the same way. Like it, you yeah. could e very easily hand your playthrough to, to someone to listen to and have them be just like the next host taking over, you know? And I, I think that there's something really special about a game that invites you to uh, connect with music and other media and not have it be purely based off of what you're writing. Because that's the wall that I run into with a lot of journaling games is that at a certain point, just like if I was writing something completely original fiction without the means of the game to create it, that I start to feel stale or like I'm hitting a wall yeah. because there's nothing else in there as input. And that's usually, you know, when I have to say, hey, someone read this and tell me what sucks about it. Um, but with this game, it's like you need to pause and you have to listen to this whole song. And the song is meant to be chosen by you to evoke a specific emotional response or like memory that you have. And that that keeps things fresh and moving, I think. Also, I just like I grew up listening to Casey Kasem and like the late night Delilah show and stuff. And so it's just a really fun game that kind of connects me to to memories from when I was a kid. This looks like a game that doesn't have a journaling aspect, right? It does, but it can be super minimal if you want it to, because the journaling aspect is about like who called and what was their problem and like what was their deal or whatever and how, what did I tell them? But you could straight up just record it. Like I didn't journal anything. I just recorded all of mine, mm. um, like my responses to the callers and like described the callers themselves and things like that. But, uh, you know, there are people who don't want to necessarily be recording their own voice and they could be writing it down as in a journal instead. Because it is refreshing, I think, to see a solo game that the core isn't journaling, right? Because I feel yeah. most yeah. solo game that you see the core journaling and often journaling in like large chunks, which is what turns me off of the many of the bigger ones because I'm a writer yep. and I don't want to be writing all the time. You know? <laughs> um, it burns you out. It really yeah, burns literally. you out. So so that that's really cool. And also I'm a, I mean, I, I just gave a lecture on this NYU where like talking about like verbs and games and what verbs do you use to engage with your game making a playlist i mean i've only heard of that in that in uh avery alder's game a ribbon drive so it's really cool to be like oh your main one of your major mechanics is make a playlist that's really really interesting and the thing about making a playlist that i love is that you then have an artifact that you can easily share with other people like the thing that convinced me to play this game was listening to aaron's patreon episode talking about it for rtfm and like talking about the game and what it was like to play it and then just playing some songs in the podcast episode. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. like I'm getting to observe part of this other person's 
journaling experience. And that's, it's so cool that like it, the game gives you that thing to share with other people. So you don't feel as alone playing it. And then also that Ken has built, you know, a 10 person like loyal community who just listens every time he broadcasts and that, that community built around it too, just makes playing it feel like you are contributing to something and like not just there alone, even as you're, you're doing it alone. I'm also glad the judges at the NES picked a smaller sort of game to feature as a judge's spotlight, because I feel sometimes in the community, the NES feel like because they're voted, only the big name titles get recognition. So it's very cool that a game like this was selected by the judges at the NES. Yeah, absolutely. This is one, like I said, I was super excited to pick it up like before any of Gen Con stuff happened. And then I was at Gen Con and it won while I was there. And I was like, oh God, I got to get this before people <laughs> buy all of it. Oh, you got the physical copy. Yeah, I have the physical copy. I try really hard to get physical copies of like the solo games that just really stick with mm. me. So this was one where I was like, yeah, I must have Zine. No, this is really, I, I, I'd seen it when the any nomination came up. I didn't look into it too deeply, but now I'm looking at it more now that you're talking about it. And I kind of want to assign it in class. I highly recommend it. God, get, get a whole semester of Ken just broadcasting your students' uh, playlist. <laughs> that would be, be so cool. Is there a college radio station at your school? I, oh, my God. I don't. I mean, NYU probably has one. If they, they must, right? Them. Oh, that yeah, would be so would cool yeah, to yeah, get yeah, them yeah. hooked up with that. I did college radio for years, and that's a big reason of why I love this game. I had yeah. a, initially a 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. slot, which is- Me too! Right. No one's listening. And so you are just talking down a phone, talking down a microphone at nobody. And it feels very strange. It's a weird headspace. Because I've often yeah. featured a uh, longtime listener, last time caller, the uh, game by Jeff Dieterle. So this is an interesting like addendum to that. But also your, I, your point, Sam, if I assign it as a general assignment, I could have all the students then mail or email their version to Ken and be like, here are all my students playthroughs of this game. He would be thrilled. <laughs> yeah. He would be thrilled. Absolutely. Aaron, is there anything else you wanted to say about this game? Like, I know you've talked a lot about it, but uh, like, yeah. No, I, I love the vibe. My favorite podcast of this year is called SF Ultra, and it's a one person podcast who he hates sci-fi and he's brainwashing himself into liking sci-fi. But he has been doing solo podcasting for years. And so he talks a lot about, I'm just talking down a phone at someone and you're listening to me. And that is a kind of strange, unique parasocial relationship. And so I love that this game kind of, even though the callers are there, you never get to hear the voice of them. Like all the calls are taken off air and the idea is you come back on and you say, oh, you know, Sam called and was dealing with this problem. And it reminded me of this thing that I went through in my life and this this kind of even though other people are explicitly there in the text, they are never there in the artifact of play. And I love yeah. that. All right. Sharing, what do we got? So my first pick was Fight with Spirit by Story Brewers. Story Brewers is a two-person company. It is a V. Hendro and Haley Gordon, who are a pair of awesome lesbian game designers from Australia. And I explicitly say lesbian game designers because I always highlight queer game designers when I know about queer game designers. And they're the people who made Good Society, which a lot of people might know. And Fight with Spirit is cool because it takes a lot of learning, a lot of stuff from the board game world. 
So the the rule book looks like a board game rule book in dimensions and look. It uses like tokens that you pass to each other and things like that. But it's not a crunchy game. It is a very storytelling game. So this is a game that emulates sports anime, right? So you all are playing a team of whatever sport you pick. I played this game first in 2020 as a playtest. And then I started a campaign recently now the game is out. And we are borrowing a magic sport from another RPG and then fleshing out the rules. So we made up a sport completely. And literally, as we're playing the game, we're like, oh, right, maybe this is a position in this game. Oh, maybe this is a rule in this game. <laughs> right? So you, it's sports. You don't need to know sports really well. You can make up one. You can do a, take a fictional one from a fictional world you like a lot, whatever. And the little bit of crunch comes in when you are playing the sport within the game session. But the crunch isn't about, you know, oh, I kick the ball at a 30 degrees or do I kick the ball at a 60 degree or anything like that. The crunch part comes in like, do you succeed in keeping your focus when faced with your biggest rival who you also have a crush on, you know? And it's, it's card-based. And it's, it's really cool. And it also highlights the, like, how manipulables and the physicality of games can affect the experience, right? There's a great article in the Journal of Analog Game Studies talking about humans as a platform, just like a PlayStation is a platform, talking about humans as a platform by Ian Bellamy. And he talks about the experiential side effects of physically manipulating things, right? He talks about rolling a D6 and drawing one of six cards probabilistically is the exact same, but physically feels very different and has different experiential side effects. And that is really apparent in this game when you're like passing tokens to each other and things, especially because the first time I played it, like I said, was in 2020 and it was the play test, right? So I didn't have the set. I had PDFs. I was playing it over Zoom, and to draw a card, I decided that what I would do is I would maximize my directory on my laptop, I would close my eyes, and I would wiggle my mouse over my screen, and when the other player said stop, I would just be like, oh, which file did I land on? Because all the cards were their own files, and I'm like, great, that's the card you drew, which of course... Is very different from, you know, drawing from a deck of cards, right? Um, and so that, that really highlighted, yes, like physicality in games and uh, the meat space can add different experiences to playing a role-playing game. Uh, it's also like really nice because it's a game about like teams and, and camaraderie, which is something I'm a sucker for. Like show me media about people demonstrating camaraderie and I'm like, I will melt, right? That's really lovely. And it's also very freeform, so you can pursue the story the way you want. It's a really cool game. A campaign is three sessions long. Oh. Right? A campaign is basically quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. And That's amazing. Right. It's really lovely, especially because, you know, I live in New York City. I have tried so many times to run campaign games, and the maximum I've ever done is seven sessions. And we're all like... Whoa, we did seven sessions? <gasps> right? So I'm like, I was like, my gaze, we are playing a three session campaign. I was like, 
amazing. So that's really lovely. Obviously, you can extend it if you want. You can be like, okay, we played one season of the sport, and then we come back and play a second yeah. season of the sport if you want, right? But yeah. you basic campaign is is three sessions. That's really cool. They have like a little, because Kickstarter, they had like a little expansion for playing historical sports, for playing fantasy sports. So it's a really lovely game that builds on the mechanics of good society, of token passing and stuff, but maintains it as a free-form game. This is not a Shadowrun style game. It is really cool, and I highly recommend it for the mechanical stuff. I just started playing the campaign. I might use it in my next fall in my Indie RPGs course. I might use as well to talk about bridging between board games and role-playing games. Very, very interesting way. Well, I'm really interested in that in particular, like the board gamey element of this. I feel like I'm seeing more and more people try to cross that bridge this year in particular. Like I have some friends that I know are working on stuff. There's one that I'll, I'll bring up later in the episode. And Mythworks put out Cyber Plus Punk this year, which is this cyberpunk Forge on the Dark game that comes on dry erase character sheets. And even just that, like, feels more board gamey. It mm. functions exactly the same as, like, a regular Forge on the Dark role-playing game, but just that element of it makes it feel replayable. It feels mm. like something you could pull out at a party and sit down and play. And that feeling is really, really exciting to me. I remember hearing about that when Jason Morningstar was doing the new Fiasco edition. Yeah. I was listening to an interview with him and he said it was a half-letter book because everyone was making half-letter books back then. I didn't realize an RPG could be anything other than a book this size. Yeah. And now that we've thought about it, like decks of cards are so much better for this game. And so like the tyranny of the book is really, I love books, but I also work in a board game store. And so I hate board games, but I'm happy <laughs> To have an RPG that um, brings in other kind of tactile elements of passing things around and touching different things and folding things and ripping things, writing on things. I really love that. And I think the new edition of Lovecraft Desk, which is by Black Robada Game, that I think is using the same philosophy that Jason Morningstar used of let's, what if this is just cards? Because already you can get supplement cards to, to Lovecraft Desk and then you don't really need to look at the book that much. And then this idea of bridging between different game media like we talk about like mansions of madness right as a board game that uses digital game tools to run now we need to see more role-playing game with your digital games or maybe like what if we create a sport a real live sport that has role-playing game elements in it right what if we hybridize all these things what if it's an escape room that you play while playing baseball i don't know all these possibilities come <laughs> up you know I am a huge fan of any game that provides the components that I would normally create myself at the table if it didn't come with them. Like the mm. amount of times that I run through a stack of index cards playing a game just because it wants you to have tokens or it wants you to have individual things written down and noted and there's not necessarily a good spot on the character sheet if there is a character sheet or there's not necessarily a good way to represent those things for me. Like, I like creating those things, but I also sometimes for, like, shorter games or for games where, that are coming together really fast, like, I'm burning through post-its and index cards and stuff if the game didn't come with those components. And so it's really nice to see games where they're going, okay, yeah, here is everything in a physical form. It's not just a book that's going to tell you to grab a deck of cards and remember what each of the suits is supposed to be. Like, it's really nice. 
that was a direct stab at Through the Breach because I love Through the Breach, but I made a custom deck with their suits so that I wouldn't have to buy their bespoke deck that you can like hardly find anywhere anymore. But yeah, I really love it when it all comes as like an all-in-one. All right, we're going to keep it moving because we are well behind where I was hoping we would be at this point. <laughs> Big surprise. Big surprise. Uh, but my first pick is a Golden Cobra game. So the Golden Cobra Challenge, if you're not familiar, is like a game jam for LARPs, but also it's judged, a bunch of award winners, very great thing every year. Read the Golden Cobras. There's always gems in there. And this year... This wasn't even one of the winners, but I like a song stuck in my head. I have not been able to stop thinking about Eating Oranges in the Shower by Hazel and Necky Dixon. I'm probably saying a neck or a Necky wrong, but here we are. So this is a game. It's a LARP. It's like four to six people or whatever. You're playing as members of a group chat. You're just like people, friends in a group chat. And you socialize a little bit. And then one of you sends a message to the group that's like, hey, you all have to check this out. And then they send a link to the Shower Oranges subreddit, which is a real subreddit dedicated to the act of eating oranges in the shower. They're just obsessed with this. It's just pictures of oranges in showers uh, at the idea of doing this. And so then you all in the LARP go out and take a shower and eat an orange. And then you come back and talk about your experience. And... On a fundamental level, the, the very idea of doing this, I think, feels to everyone just a little transgressive when you hear about it. Like, it feels a little bit, like, smutty. Like, it feels, like, forbidden somehow. But it's also just, like, all you're doing is, like, eating an orange in a shower. Oh, like, how, like what? this is the most, like, chaste, normal, like, thing to do. But there's something about the idea of that experience that feels sensual and feels compelling but then the game also really i think captures the feeling of discovering a weird niche online community and just poking around like that that feeling that i think has become really rare as the internet has become more centralized of like stumbling upon something magical and strange that you never would have found in your real life but on the internet here it is and you get to share that with your friends and that experience is a second like magical ephemeral thing that i am obsessed with and that i think this game captures really well i it really makes me think of alex roberts's game about balloon fetishists online right because mm. <laughs> alex roberts has in the in the in honey and hot wax the anthology of sex games that i co-edited with lucian khan Alex Roberts' inclusion in the, in the anthology is a game that emulates online spaces. You play as though you are on different online spaces, but you do it in the meat space. So instead of typing tweets, you write them on strips of paper and throw them in a bowl, things like that. But it's about balloon fetishists. And Alex Roberts joined a balloon fetish community online and talked to them and learned about them in order to make that game. And it, it makes me think of that. And like, yes, there's like magical communities of people who have a transgressive interest and, and joining them and treating them as real people and not as like bums. It, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm on the subreddit right now. And I would just like to shout out rule number three, no grapefruit whatsoever, all caps. <laughs> we have strict yeah. rules regarding which fruits are suitable in this subreddit. Citrus fruits such as oranges, clementines, tangerines, tangelas, blood oranges, cuties, as well as satsumas are all acceptable. 
Oh my god. Yeah. So the whole subreddit like came from one post on an Ask Reddit reply that was like in 2005 at beach break camp darby italy on a club beyond youth trip my male counselor told me something i would never forget he said photon bandit would you like to know the most liberating carnal and best feel-good thing you can ever experience is <laughs> of course i said yes have you ever eaten an orange in the shower i yeah. want to do this while stoned yes i do think that that is sort of a necessary part of this game is to to do this while stoned yeah well, now we're going to listen to our second brilliant, maybe even third, we might put two of them here, contributor from outside our little panel here. Here they are. Hi, Sam. Thomas from the Indie RPG newsletter here. This was a pretty good year in games for me. I got to play Apocalypse World 2nd Edition for the first time. I got to play Passion de la Passiones. Both were amazing games. I spent a lot of time playing my game, The Ship is No Mother, playtesting, and then after its release, and Every single session of that game was phenomenal. I think it was a complicated year for RPG journalism. Lynn Cordega lost their job, and that sucks. But I want to shout out the video essays of A.A. White, Aaron White on YouTube, who's doing some really cool stuff, doesn't get enough views as far as I'm concerned. I think what you're doing with Dice Explorers is, is, is awesome. We honestly need more shows like yours. But if people aren't listening to Daydreaming About Dragons, by Judd Kalman. That's my favorite RPG podcast, and they should definitely check that out. They're not reading Paul Beakley of the Indie Game Reading Club. They're missing out on some great RPG writing. Aaron Marks over at Cannibal Halfling never misses. There's lots of cool people talking about indie games, and I hope that people check them out and see what they have to say. Hey there, it's Mikey Ham, friend of Sam's, designer of Slug Blaster, and I want to talk about those big Smithsonian picture encyclopedia books. You know us gamers, we love our pop culture and our nostalgia and our genre emulation, and I am as guilty as any, but it's so creatively invigorating to get back to primary sources, science, history, talking to people, you know, real people, not gamer people, reading about other careers, weird careers, all that kind of stuff. And these books are just so fun for that. They're visual, they're fun to read. They'll give you layout design ideas. They'll give you world-building ideas. And yeah, just pick pick one up. They're really great. And here's a bonus. You know how people are always asking for Christmas present ideas and you never, never know what to give them because it's either like you tell them, oh, give me a comic book and they buy you a comic book you don't like or instead you're like, buy me this specific comic book and then it doesn't feel like you're even getting a present. It feels like you're just like, ordering something and you know it's not fun instead just say i would like a big picture encyclopedia reference book or like a big reference coffee table book because no matter what they give you it's gonna give you ideas and it's really fun to build a collection of those things so that's another reason they're great they're just an instant thing you can tell people to get you for presents um because i know your mom is asking and i know you've been putting off texting your back about it Anyways, I really like Picturepedia. That's the first one I would get. It is really cool because on one page, you'll see like a spread of gemstones. And on the next page, you'll see like a spread of all the, you know, tanks from World War II. And, you know, the next page will show you like all the different human evolution skulls laid beside each other. They're really cool. And they were a big inspiration for me. Bye. 
just geniuses once again. Like, I really can't express uh, how smart these people are that I haven't heard yet. But that brings us to our, our second round through this. So, Aaron, what's your second game? This is my most vanilla pick. It's called Under Tree Temple of the Elf Gods. It is by Christoph Rochelle slash Happy Chthonian. It's just a little site, a little adventure site. But I live in a world where I would just eat one of these every month. A little place to go with some weird stuff. There is some good evocative detail, like some really tight, you know, what you would hope for from an OSR style thing without any of the, say, racism or homophobia of a lot of OSR style things. There's a thing called the Theoglut that has the head of a sperm whale and the, a child-sized malformed body, and it eats gods. And it's just a nice little... I mean, it's not nice. It gets grody sometimes, which is also why <laughs> I like it. But just... yeah, I, it, I didn't pick it as like, this is the greatest thing ever, but it, to me, is a good example of something that I just... Instead of subscribing to a newspaper, I wish I could get a little adventure site every month delivered to my door. We need HelloFresh for dungeons. That's what we need. (laughs) I read this one after you listed it on your picks because it's free. And some of these other games I didn't read because they're not free. Um, (laughs) And because I was busy as hell. But it is just so bite-sized and lovely yeah, and it has all just these a, like a reduction uh, you know you boil it down and it's also got like there's a, a yeah there's a the bones here that's just like yeah bones it's just random bones it's d7 for tens place d10 for ones place presumably they like that's how many could fit on one spread and we've got temporal bone right or left tibia trapezium they're just a random list of kinds of bones. Why is this in here? I don't know. Maybe there's bone stuff involved in this. I can't remember, but it's just like, it pads out the page count, I guess. Bones are hot this year. Yeah, it's vibey. You're the bone. Yeah, I just, I, again, as RPGs, like, get out there and push boundaries, which I love, like, I hope it continues. I also just like that people are back here kind of rehashing these things that maybe have had problematic aspects or didn't have access to desktop publishing in the seventies or anything. And just kind of making them a little refreshed and a little current for our times. I enjoyed reading this. I might forget about it in five months and that's fine too. Like I think in my life, there's a nice place for this really temporal experience of a strange evocative thing that doesn't stick with me. There are some sad dryads in this that really stuck with me that are like being maybe eaten by termites. And that's mm-hmm. scary and sad and a compelling, memorable image. I think the stuff like this where it's like, you know, kind of an agnostic, like supporting document or whatever, often gets overshadowed by like big games and like core rule books and stuff. But also like these little ephemeral pieces that I don't remember next year, you know, those are the things that actually help my games have bones. Yeah. Not not to make a pun, not to make a pun, but but like when I'm running stuff, if I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel for ideas, I'm pulling out one of these. I'm not flipping through the rule book most of the time. Yeah. And so I really appreciate people making just like weird bite-sized things that I can kind of stick in anywhere. Right. It's just like good street food to me. Yeah. I'm not paying a lot of money for it, but sometimes I'm hungry and I just want to shove a taco in my mouth and 
move on with my life. And yeah, I don't know if that sounds complimentary. It probably doesn't, but I mean yeah. it well. I, I mean, I think yeah. that there is a place for stuff that is going to stick with you forever. And there's a place for stuff that was really what you needed at the moment, you know? Well, and the thing about something like this, too, is like I read this like a week ago and I already don't remember anything in it other than that image of a dryad being eaten by termites. But like, I'm going to remember that the rest of my fucking life. Like, and I, I'm going to bring that into a game at some point. And it's so short. It's such a quick read. If you get one sticky idea like that out of something of this size, like that's beautiful. Agreed. Audrey, what's next? My second pick is another solo game. It's called Wreck This Deck by Black Armada Games, which is Josh Fox and Becky Anison. So the thing about this game is that Becky has explicitly said that she started working on it because of how horrified Josh was when they were playing Pandemic Legacy and he was supposed to rip up a card in that game. And this game is about you have a deck of cards you are trying to bind demons to the deck and do rituals and do kind of like oracle readings and things like that with this standard deck of 52 cards. But every time you bind a demon or every time like a ritual goes wrong or anything like that, you have to modify the cards and you can like cast curses on people and stuff, but that requires you to fully destroy a card that then is no longer in your deck whatsoever. And all the cards have meanings assigned to them so that if they pop up in your rituals or in your oracles, you can kind of extrapolate from there. I really like it as a person who reads tarot and also who does a lot of collage art. This mm. game is just like so fun to be able to to go, oh yeah, okay, so I trapped this demon. How do I trap him? Well, I'm supposed to put pins through two of his eyes, but that's not like a long-term sustainable solution for me to keep it in my deck. So what am I going to do here? Like, I guess I'm going to put these brass brads through the eyes of the king of spades, you know, and then figure out how to keep that in my deck and to keep shuffling it. And the other part of it that's really cool is that so during the pandemic, when they were like putting out the prototype drafts of this, people were sharing a lot online the different things they would do. So you'd see you'd see like this grainy cell phone video that's a guy at like midnight out at the creek behind his house with a card in the creek under a rock that he's going to pick up the next morning, you know, just lots of really beautiful art coming out of it too. people painting fully on the cards and they the fan community is huge. And so there's been a lot of like card exchanges mm. where you bind a demon for someone else and then send that to them. And like it maintains the meta fiction. So it is a solo game, but there is a ton of community aspects to it if you want there to be, basically. Or if all you want this to be is an excuse to do some messy, imperfect art with your hands, that's a great way to do it too. So this is one that like, I hadn't heard of it before. I wasn't playing during the pandemic. But when they started doing their Kickstarter prep, Becky had heard about my podcast and asked if I wanted to play it on the podcast. So I got to do a good like three-part series while during the campaign of just playing the game and I haven't stopped playing it since. So I love the transgressiveness of this. Like I my first experience with the idea of ripping up a card and feeling horrified is playing Magic the Gathering as a kid. And <laughs> there was a format called Iron Man that was like, if any card goes to the graveyard, you rip it up instead. And people were like playing this with cards that like now would be worth many thousands of dollars, right? Like, like it was, oh, uh, it was like a such a visceral like experience to do. And I, I love seeing a whole solo game made out of that. I would shout out. I first heard about this game on the Yes Indeed podcast, where Thomas Manuel did an interview with with Becky, 
and it's a great interview. I, I recommend it if you're interested in hearing more about the design of this game. Yeah, Becky has some really solid design chops to my mind. I just think that she's got a really unique way of going about things and like wanting to make things fresh all the time. So this one was one where like it takes so little prep and there's like, you know, you can use the demons in the book. You can make up your own. There's a ton of like fan demon codexes and like other creature type codexes. Like some guy has made like a whole guide to like yokai um, from Japanese mythology and like there's an angel one like that someone's made. So it's just it's a game that is getting like ongoing support from the community in a way that I feel like you don't always see with small games. And that to me is just really special. And also I just have a bunch of partial decks of cards at my house and I keep feeding cards into my deck and making my character suffer because of it because she doesn't know where the cards are coming from. So, uh, Awesome. Uh, sharing, what do we got next? So my next pick was The Silt Verses by Gabriel Robinson and Jason Cordova. Caveat, this is a game I have not yet played, but I'm picking it because I'm fairly confident in my thoughts about it because this is another iteration of a game using uh, Jason Cordova's Brindlewood Bay as a base. I think they're using the term it's carved from Brindlewood. And Brindlewood Bay itself is descended from Apocalypse World games. But they add this really interesting thing about mystery solving where the... So Brindlewood Bay, the, the big shtick of it, which I've written about on Dicebreaker, is that neither players nor authors nor GMs know the solution to any given mystery, right? The game comes with all these mysteries and each mystery comes with a list of clues and players, based on certain dice rolls, will uncover clues and then at some point, the player's like, great, we have enough clues. And then they generate the solution to the mystery based on the clues that they found. And sometimes that involves retroactively adding details to the fiction. The big example they always use in the book is, oh, maybe one of the clues is a severed finger. When you're in your solution phase, you can be like, oh, right, that woman must have had a severed finger because she she was wearing gloves the time we met her because in the game you never described what she was wearing like oh yeah let's say now that she was wearing gloves and she had a severed finger that's why she wearing gloves right so you can do that and then you as players create the solution to the mystery and that's really really cool and so the original game Brindlewood Bay is about elderly ladies in a seaside Massachusetts town solving cozy mysteries except as you play more mysteries, there's a campaign through line, which is there's a Lovecraftian horror cult behind all this, and they're doing like horrible stuff, right? So it's a really lovely game. It's a really, really well done game. So this game, The Silt Versus, uses the same engine with, you know, tweaks and things, because I think it's the fourth game in that series. But instead, it's based on the podcast, The Silt Versus. And in this game, you are in this strange world populated by all these really bizarre gods. It's a semi-modern world, but filled with bizarre gods. And you are like agents that run around the countryside dealing for the government or for the big agency with reports of like rogue gods or rogue worshippers of gods, right? And I picked this because, well, the engine is already a solid one, but the tone of this game is so interesting. It's just like 
bleak sort of world full of these really, really bizarre gods. And you pick a god to worship at the beginning. And for example, one of the gods is the Trawler Man. And if you worship him, you get a power called either the Mouth Devouring, where you can eat random objects, just consume any object you want, or the Mouth Returning, which allows you to flood the locations, right? I'm like, that's strange. Or you can pick, my other favorite god is called the Wax Scrivener. And I'm going to read out some text. Followers of the Waxen Scrivener devote their lives to recording of knowledge and then abandoning it. Their whole point is they must record knowledge and then leave it somewhere for it to get moldy and destroyed, right? That is their, like, purpose in life. And so this, this like, world, this weird world with all these bizarre gods that make you do cool things as you take... um it's not called wounds in this game, but for listeners, as you like take consequences for your actions, you know, you build up stuff. And in the end, you do your final prayer, which is this enormous thing that might destroy the town you're in. Uh, it takes inspiration from Heart by Rowan Rickon Deckard. Uh, it literally, it says, we are inspired by Heart by Rowan Rickon Deckard. So that's interesting. It's a like, weird, bleak game where you're like investigating, but also like the world is decaying around you and you are contributing to that. And I'm really excited to play a campaign of this. It sounds rad. Sounds very American gods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, this sounds so cool. I got nothing else to say. I want to read yeah, this. I th- it, yeah. I know. I, I had heard about this and like I had been aware of the podcast before, but like never picked it up. But then someone was like, Hey, what if the what if the Puritans had to survive like a post-apocalyptic horror? And I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll read that. So I'm really yeah, excited. I mean, you like never meet the gods, so it's a little bit different American gods in that way. Mm. And it's all biz- like the gods are like these bizarre entities that you must feed with sacrifices. They're yeah. kind of inscrutable. Like the trawler man is this river god, but also like like is a trash god at the same time yeah the saint electric is the god of small technological items like what it, it's just very strange yeah. and cool i will shout out we did a an episode on this show on the theorize mechanic earlier this year and i have a lot of opinions about it that people can go check out i don't like it personally i find it weird and we talked about it for literally an hour so i won't get into it here but i i'm always sad that i don't like that mechanic because so many cool card from brindlewood games are coming out like there's there's just so many like settings that these people keep making that seem great and i uh this definitely qualifies i might have to check out the fiction podcast honestly yeah i have an article on dicebreaker which talks about um how tabletop games are upending the mystery genre because remember early mystery novels were almost conceived of as games, right? Like mystery writers had rules mm, that they followed right. and they need to give the reader a fair chance of guessing the solution, right? And that's why I really love the theorize mechanic because I'm like, this is exploding our notion of how games deal with mysteries, which is usually GM yeah. knows the solution and like blah, blah, blah. So obviously anyone yeah. can like or dislike mechanics, but yeah, that's something I, I really like. I do love that. It is such a like pushing on the edge of what kinds of games we can design, and I love that part of it at the very least. Um, 
My second pick is Barkeep on the Borderlands by W.F. Smith of the Prismatic Wasteland blog and also innumerable other contributors. It's like a dozen other contributors. I guess you could enumerate them if you wanted to. This is not a dungeon crawl module. It's a pub crawl module. It is you know loosely inspired by the original Keep on the Borderlands module for the original Dungeons and Dragons. But like, what if we're, you know, like, 100 years later or something and now that keep was like a big town and all the denizens of the dungeon had been sort of incorporated into the town and it's set during like a mardi gras kind of town-wide celebration and the monarch who rules over the town has been poisoned and the antidote has gone missing and you have one week six days maybe to track down this antidote by going from bar to bar and like doing your best. And I read this, you know, this thing won Ennies and I read it for the first time earlier this year after hearing about it that way. And it's such an easy breezy read. I think there's a great structure for a module in the first place. So you have like an overall premise, you got some rumors, you got some factions, you got some locations. And then it has this wonderful procedure, I guess you'd say, or the OSR people would say, for playing through the module like the players take a turn they like do one thing whatever you think that means and then the referee rolls and either time passes or it's time for another drink and like everyone has to find out if they get drunker or a random encounter crops up and just the fact that every time the players do anything the world reacts all of those things are pushing momentum always forward 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 like into this party like trying to figure out what's going on next and then reading this thing is just a delight on its own but then playing it it's so easy to run you just like read the first like 10 pages through this procedure and some of the background and then i didn't read any of the bars there's this thing is like littered with like 18 bars or something in the back that you could use on their own in any given campaign they're all themed in some way there's one that's like the wizard bar and one where there's a phoenix and they're doing karaoke there's one that's just in somebody's apartment and there's one that's like the cheers bar and playing through it is just this rollicking good time i don't know how else to say it it was just so fun to just have like send people out into this party and have it feel like a party have it feel like they're getting lost in a late night constantly getting distracted by like Oh, we got to like make sure this bachelorette party stays on track. We got to like make sure these two people hook up because we're invested in their romance. And also, what what are we doing again? Oh yeah, we have to save the monarch from dying. All of that is just kind of going on all the time. It feels chaotic, but it's also clear in tone, clear in purpose and so easy to use. I just had such a blast running it. I remember when this one came out being really struck by the art because it's mm. all like candy colored. You know, it's like pink features super heavily. And that to me, like it being pitched to me as as kind of an OSR style thing. But then that being the art, I was like, well, what's going on here? Wait a second. (laughs) What's going on? So you saying that it's like taking place during a festival and stuff that really makes sense to me, all the art that I'm seeing. But it's I also just I was a sucker for the kids books, you know, like Where's Waldo and I Spy and all of those, but also had a series of books that were called like puzzle dungeon, puzzle castle, things Mm. like that. And it would do the like 3D cutaways. And the art in this book 
of all the different taverns and the places that you can go really harkens back to that for me. So I'm I'm very excited to hear that it was as much fun to play as it is to look at. The other thing about running it was just that the procedure that I talked about of pushing forward the momentum of the story, it almost felt like we didn't need more rules than that. Like it's system agnostic. It recommends using errant or cairn, but you could easily run this as like a 5e adventure. But I also felt like I don't need other rules. Like I, I, it would be great to have some sort of game that like gives you character creation to just have an idea of who our people are. But like, I don't know. I ran this using Himbos of Myth and Metal. Shout out to Aaron's co-host Max for Himbos. But, you know, Himbos gave us a good vibe, but I really didn't feel like we needed the mechanics from it much at all. Like the thing that drove this forward was largely contained in the module itself. And I love to see that. I love a game that or a module that really supports really freeform play where the, the sort of bounds of that play are the fiction that the module has given you. And this was just so good at that. Max ran it for me. Oh, yeah. Someone else. And I actually cannot tell you what system we used for it. Partially because, like you said, the module is like really good at kind of having its own rules. Partially because we were following the drinking game rules included in (laughs) uh, Keep on the Borderlands. And I got pretty drunk, you know, safely. Alcohol is dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But I had a, a roaring good time, like you said. And a quick shout out to it. It was nominated in Dicebreaker's Tabletop Awards this year for both Best Art and Best Role Playing Game. And self-call, I was on that jury. So <laughs> There you go. All right. Before we totally move on, here is once again. I, you know what? I did have a couple come in. Maybe I'll put John Harper here. Here's John Harper. Hi, this is John Harper, author of Blades in the Dark and other games. I want to tell you about Girl by Moonlight an amazing RPG by Andrew Gillis about magical girls. It is basically five games in one, a variety of settings, characters, situations for your team of magical girls to fight against the forces of evil in a really like exciting, mechanically interesting, queer positive kind of game. It's probably my most anticipated new game to play. I can't wait to get it to the table. Uh, yeah, check out Girl by Moonlight. It's amazing. Thanks, John. Uh, Aaron, what's your next game? Thank you, John Harper, for not canceling us after Max criticized Blaze in the Dark on the <laughs> which you can find at rtfmcast.com. Um, mm. My final game is Crush Depth Apparition by Amanda Lee Frank. This is the conclusion to Amanda's Bad Boats trilogy, which started with You Got a Job on the Garbage Barge, then Vampire Cruise, then Crush Depth Apparition. These are all sort of semi-modern, yet old-school dungeons that are very strange. Amanda's an amazing artist. All these things are filled with cool ink drawings that are smeary and scary and strange. She's a Chicago designer as well. This one particularly is uh, about going on a submarine in 1902, And then there are ghosts and kind of ghostly labyrinths haunting the submarine. And it is about kind of dealing with these war weapons as a a fun tourist thing. Like you're on this fun, oh, let's go on the submarine. It's so cool that we invented submarines. Let's also deal with all the people who have been killed because of war and how submarines have been added to them. But there's, it's, I mean, that makes it sound really heavy. I guess it's pretty heavy. 
It's got to be heavy to sink to the bottom of the ocean. Got him. <laughs> but it's also just a weird, you know, as, as much as it's like the cool thing to draw parallels to, there are a lot of kind of Jeff Vandermeer annihilation parallels of like strange spaces and weird echoes that defy time and space. It's a beautiful book, and I'm so glad that she got to finish her trilogy. And they're all so fun. Like I've run You Got a Job on the Garbage Barge four or five times. I just think she makes these really readable, accessible things that are also strange, intensely personal, and cannot be separated from her own artistic approach. Huge shout out to Amanda Lee's camaraderie page also, where she's regularly putting, like every month, she just puts out spot art for people to use in their games, like a, yes. a couple of pages of it for free. And I got a lot of spot art doing that before I uh, ran into money troubles and had to stop. But her art style has always been really interesting. And looking at Crush Depth Apparition, I feel like she's trying some new things or at least doing a different kind of art from Vampire Cruise is the the main other thing that I'm familiar with with her. But the, the kind of like watercolor ghostliness of some of this stuff is yes. really yeah beautiful. and she's like an amazing chameleon as well like you can always yeah. tell it's her work but she can do oh this is 18th century like embroidery or art deco advertisement kind of stuff and it feels like that but it still just feels like her own work as well mouth brood is another amazing kind of hex crawl annihilation style strange environment in the tundra that i really love I mean, you can't miss with her stuff, I think. Yeah, you can't. Audrey, what do we have next? So my third pick is Extreme Meat Punks Forever by Sinister Beard Games. This is one where I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, this is showing up on any best games of the year list. But this is a creator that I followed for a while because Extreme Meat Punks is, it was a video game first, actually two video games first. You're literally living on a fleshy world, hurling through the universe with no star because the star disappeared a while ago. And you have giant meat mechs that you get into. And there's a lot of like the antagonists in this are just called the fash. Like they are fascist cops, full stop. The game explicitly is like, don't flesh out these characters. Don't give them names kind of thing. So it was a really gnarly game, like with a really gnarly setting. And it's powered by the apocalypse. It's got some basic moves. They're all renamed things like fuck around and find out stuff like that. And the playbooks in it are just really evocative to me. I don't think that it's necessarily doing anything like crazy groundbreaking, but there's so much love and care on every page for this setting and for what this game wants to be that to me, I'm like, a big proponent of, yeah, just put out your like plain text game that you've been working on. Don't worry about polishing it up kind of thing, but also polish up your home game and throw it out there because if you have a lot of art for it and you have a lot of fun with it, then then put it out there. And that's to some degree what the tone both like in writing of this game and just like knowing the history of Sinister Beard having done the video games and stuff first is like... This is something that they've been playing for ages with their friends and to put it out as like a game that people can buy and enjoy and also play in that world is just really cool to me. I think it's neat when people take something that they love so much and say, no, I'm not going to divorce this from my home tables, like head cannons <laughs> and things. I'm going to just put it out there with all the 
weird, meaty, fleshy, gross history of this thing. And then I also, I have been on the hunt this year for a Met game that does it for me because I'm not into super crunchy stuff. And there's a lot of really cool Met games out there. But there is something to be said for me about Meat Punks capturing a lot of like the Pacific Rim feelings that I'm looking for in a mech game. Um, You are like intrinsically connected to the nervous system of your mech because it is flesh. And so, so are you is kind of the idea. And so there's like specific moves that you take if your mech takes too much damage and like how that kills your mech and also impacts you. And so it's like each specific class has a different move for connecting to their mech and those were really cool to me on a mechanical level and then also just like this game is explicitly like we are queer and we are disabled and we are here and we're not going away and that is something that has become very important to me in like a setting terms this is like bright and hopeful but it is also very boots on the ground this is how you have to be if you want to start a revolution kind of thing. It's been on my to read list forever. It's also on our like RTFM. We need to cover this game list. I I want to get into it. I want to run it. I think it's one that you would really like Aaron. Just it just from like this game is not apologizing at all. Let's end the podcast. I'm going to buy it. And I'll run it right now. We're all going to yes. play this pumps forever. We're hijacking it. Also, it has a playbook called Weird of the Waste. And I am just like, oh, man, I wish I thought of that. Yeah. I think Meat Punk might be my word of the year. I first heard it uttered by Wendy Yu when I had her on the show earlier this year. And she was shouting out Lycoma, which is a different meat punk RPG that came out this year by future Dice Exploder guests Stregowulf Vandenberg and the Bogfolk co-op, and which covers a lot of the same themes, also has even more striking visuals than this game. But while I, I already recorded the episode with Stregowulf, and they shout out the meat punk manifesto that yes. Heather, one of the authors of Extreme Meat Punks Forever, wrote and this meat punk manifesto is beautiful i I just think it's a great manifesto great reading pretty short too and just i don't know i love a body horror and i love a punk so i think it's really cool like the manifesto itself it subtlety is for fuckers and that's like the thesis of the game yeah especially combined with bodies are weird and gross but also cool like that is the whole idea of a meat mech so yeah good shout on the manifesto for sure yeah sharing what do we got so my last game is a game that sam and i played together it was facilitated by sam this big bad you stole this this pick for me yeah because i'm foreign and it is uh, it is a game by Jason Morningstar and Lizzie Stark in their guise of Six of Hounds, which is their name when they publish games together because they're both well-known game designers on their own. And it continues this tradition of highly political games that I've seen come out from Jason, but it's a tradition of highly political games that have the players do a task that can like completely engross you that is different yeah. from the role playing that you are doing in the game, right? So I compared a lot to Winterhorn, which I sometimes use in my classes, which is a game where you play basically like a CIA task force trying to dismantle a activist group. And you're, you're like doing a whole task of figuring out what 
what are we doing to this activist group? So even if you don't want to role play at all, you're still engaging with the themes and ideas the game is discussing. And the similar, so the broadcast is a game where, and I bought it immediately, like literally, as I, when I got back home from Big Bad Con, I bought the game because it's so cool. It is a game where you play a news bureau within an authoritarian regime. Most of you play newscasters. One of you plays the state censor who is sitting in the newsroom with you. And their butt is also on the line if things go wrong, right? Not just newscasters. And the main thing of the game is you have these news reports that are the journalists in the field are sending you. So they're very factual. And you have to then, there's a phase where you decide how much of that you actually read on air or do you censor parts of it or do you even change parts of it, right? You can like cross out things and modify. The state censor might tell you to do things and you have the choice of what you want to follow or not. But depending on how you portray the state, you can meet a sticky end, right? The state censor gives you a grade of how loyal you were to the state after each news report. And it's fascinating because again you can role play a a, a news reader who has all these backstory and gold things like sam and i did right for example like sam and my character is like banged in game right because we decided oh i have repressed homosexuality he has other things going on in his life we're just gonna have sex to blow off some steam right but you could play the game without role-playing much, just being like fairly like straightforward, but the act of sitting there and deciding what you want to censor, what you want to change, whether or not you want to censor or change anything, is role-playing and makes you grapple with the themes of like censorship in this game, right? Like what is the responsibility of the press? What does freedom of speech mean? Like things like that. It's a, fa- it's, a, it's a LARP, by the way. It's a, it's a live-action role-playing game. It's a brilliant game, and if it were more players, I'd run it in class more, but I might give it as an optional thing in class. It's, it's really clever, and again, it, it allows various kinds of people to play because you don't have to be extremely LARPy to still get a lot out of the game. I have a lot to say about this game also, having played it, but I am part, part of the thing with this game that we did at Big Bad Con was we recorded every rehearsal and then every broadcast that we did. You do sort of a weekend of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I have these like six recordings of us playing the game, and I'm planning to try to put together a bonus episode of Dice Exploder that is just a recap of the play experience and like insert the recordings and talk about what happened between the recordings and what decisions was I making like as a player and as a character as the game went along. And... I'll say that like the end of this game for me was one of the more profound moments of role-playing that I had this year. I had like a really, really amazing moment just by myself while everyone else was uh, in another room that I'll never forget. And I want to touch on the thing you were saying about how the game gives you a task. Like my, my partner is a theater director and she has talked about how She saw this scene staged, like, she's in rehearsals for this play as an assistant director, and the director has the actors just, like, chopping potatoes in the scene, and by giving them actual potatoes to chop, like, when they went from rehearsal to 
the potatoes are here and it's like time to chop. The scene just completely changed because they have a task in front of them to do. Like suddenly they're not focusing on their lines and what would their characters say and all this kind of stuff. They're just like doing the task and all that stuff kind of comes out around the edges of doing the task. It's it's like you it gets the being your character goes into your subconscious because you put the task at the the front of mind. And I think that this game and Jason's other games, and I, I don't know Lizzie's work as much, but presumably her other games as well, like, just do such a good job of doing that. It's such a great way to, like, get people to get into character. One of my main guiding principles as a games person is that games differ from other art forms and the verbs they ask players to engage with, right? I've lectured about this before. I've worked on games that use this idea. And I, I think designing brilliant games comes from using this uniqueness of the game's medium, which is the fact that it involves players engaging in verbs, right? So the earlier thing about mm. choosing a playlist really resonates with me. Same thing here. By like what verbs are you asking the players to engage with that's not just roll dice by making it like what verbs the players engage with, what do they add to the play experience, right? So Honey and Hot Wax, I talked about asks players in many of the game, the book to engage in real world sex acts, right? Because the question the book is asking is how does this change your experience of fiction and of this connection with this other person that you're forming while role-playing with them, right? And so this game, I think, it really sings to me because it talks to my guiding principle as a game designer and games, I'm not going to say scholar, because I'm not a real scholar, but a game's semi-scholar, I don't know, appreciator. A game's academic. Yeah, that is true. I am a game's academic, just not a game scholar. And it really sings to that idea, like, how do the verbs enhance the emotional affect and like all those kinds of things. Oh, it's just it's really cool. And, ooh. So I'm glad I nabbed it from you, Sam. <laughs> You're welcome. It sounds really awesome. And I did used to work in broadcast news. So this is one that would be very interesting to play, I think. Mm, yeah. There's a disclaimer in the game that it's not a realistic depiction of this experience. Like they, they went and talked to reporters in authoritarian countries sure, to like learn sure. about background. But I think they you still learn something you get that emotional truth of an experience even if you're not sort of loyal to the practical truth of the thing with this yeah the game right. isn't about what is it like to be a journalist in an authoritarian country the game is yeah. about making you think about bravery courage during authoritarianism and the yeah. role of media and things like that oh yeah well look i would never actually want to play a game that wanted me to pretend to be a broadcast <laughs> news person again like i would never actually play that yeah, that is different from a lot of role-playing games. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Dungeons & Dragons, but it is a realistic representation of being an elf sorcerer. Yeah. And, no, uh, I haven't. Can you tell me more about that? I got hours. <laughs> Listen, I got I've, hours on D&D. I've played uh, The Straits Are Not Okay, and that is a realistic representation of going to a Midwestern gender reveal party. So, no. Anyway, my last pick is self-indulgent to some extent. It is The Exiles by Emma Costa, which I guess is just called Exiles now. So Emma Costa, I've had them on the show. They are one of my dear, dear RPG friends. And they they put up this game Crescent Moon several years ago that is, I think of it as like Over the Garden Wall, the RPG. It's like your tweens. 12, 14, something like that, going into a magical fairy world and you've been trapped there and now you're trying to get back home. And 
they made a sequel game here, uh, Exiles, in which you are teens, like 18 to 20 now, and the fairy world is hell, and you're emo as fuck, and you're just really angsty. (laughs) (laughs) And you're climbing your way out of hell. And I played two short campaigns of this this year, and it was just my favorite implementation of Forge in the Dark yet, other than maybe Blades in the Dark proper. But it just does, it simplifies everything down in this nice way. It is so tactile in the way that it feels, even though there's just kind of a digital edition right now, but it's got the mouse ritter kind of equipment thing going on. Instead of experience points, you capture memories and then each memory you like write down a little memory and like put it in a slot. And when you get enough memories, you like advance. I think that's just such a wonderful way of flavoring experience. It's dark and fucked up in a lot of ways. Like there's weird, weird stuff in the basic items and spells that you can get. And it has... One of my favorite things in any party-based RPG of mechanics for the relationships between all the characters. You have like a tracker for each of your other companions and how you are feeling about them. Like what's the state of your relationship? And if you get up to a certain level, like you have a moment where you come closer. And if you get down far enough, then you yell at them and like have a falling out and have to deal with that. And it's combining this sort of dark fantasy crawl with all that like let's go cry about it energy that I think the best RPGs or the best RPG groups for me kind of get to. And I just I just really loved everything about it. Like the basic adventure it comes with is there's a dragon in a volcano and they're dying. And all these adventurers are like descending on the place to get their share of the loot. And the whole game kind of feels like that inversion of the fantasy thing where it's a little bit sad like instead of the dragon being this terrifying thing it's like the dragon is dying and we're, we're trying our best to like make something out of that to like get back home but in the in the meantime we have to contend with that and since i have played this like six months ago m has gone on and is re- like continue to develop it into, frankly, a game that I like less, but which is coming out and finally being delivered next year. And it's even simpler. And both versions of this game, I think, do a really interesting job of like bridging the OSR and story game kind of places. M has become someone who like just hates rules. Like the thing that they want is like two pages of setting lore and then a simple D20 roll under mechanic and like, let's fucking go. And Eventually, when The Exiles becomes fully published, as opposed to just being a preview version on Itch, it will be something closer to that. But it's also maybe going to become like a card-based thing. They're doing a lot of interesting stuff with like bringing in those board game components that we talked about before with the other game. And I don't know, just the flavor of this, the play experience of it, what it represents is a fusion of two styles of play that I really like. Everything about this game was just such a wonderful experience to play. And gorgeous. The art is, I was going to say the art is really striking. Yeah. And the way you're describing it has like a bit of like the Sean and McGuire series Wayward Children is kind of mm. what I'm envisioning, yeah. which is a little bit about like, how do you go home if you can't go home? Mm-hmm. You know? So it's, it's very compelling. And you don't like, yeah, you don't take harm in this game. You shed tears, right? Like it's that kind of uh. like... <laughs> Yeah. I'm also really compelled about kind of an emerging trend where people are making like sequels 
to mm-hmm. games that they've already created or like direct continuations, which I really, really enjoy. I think this is very cool. I'm also a fan of, I mean, this is this might sound snobby. I hope it doesn't sound snobby. People should make whatever art they want to make, right? I will never be angry at someone or think they're lesser for making art. But I very much appreciate when people take existing game engines and add new ways and new mechanics and new things, right? Because there are a lot of games that use Blade's mechanics, and to me, they just feel a bit like reskinned, right? Which is like, amazing. Make the art you want to make. Everyone should do that. But I really like it when people are like, well, this base engine of Blades is great, but I'm going to tweak all these things to make a new thing using this base engine, right? So I'm thinking yeah. of uh, Strauss's Band of Blades. I love Band of Blades. I played a campaign during isolation of Band of Blades run by Ross Kalman, and it was lovely. It uses the base mechanic, but it does all these nifty things with it. So you talking about another game like that, that uses the blades, the Forge in the Dark, like base, but does cool, unusual things with it really gets me excited. New mechanics are always cool. I agree. Because the thing is, is when it's like a reskin of a setting, I'm like, that's very cool. And I think it's very awesome. But also, I could have just taken the setting, you know, or like my own setting if we're going to use basically one-to-one same mechanics. So I really appreciate that this one is referencing Slug Blaster, too, because that's like my go-to Forged in the Dark that doesn't feel like Forged in the Dark hardly anymore because he's done so many new things with it. Like Brindlewood is like that for Apocalypse, right? Like it uses... I was, yes, was going to yes. say, like, that first generation of PBTA games, you got stuff like Dungeon World and Monster of the Week, which were, like, reskins, totally fine on their own. And then yeah. you had, like, Monster Hearts, which, yep. which is, like, is a totally this blows curveball. all this other shit out of the water, but is still, like, very clearly descended from Apocalypse World. And so, yeah. yeah. I mean, and John and you Harper- get to Dream Askew, right? And it's something else completely. Like, yeah, and... I mean, so much so that it spawned its own genre, yeah. Like, yeah. genre of game. And like so John Harper talks about Blades being descended from Apocalypse, right? Yeah. So yeah, and I think overall people don't realize how tailored a system like Blades in the Dark is to its setting. There are so many decisions in the design of that game that are there to support doing heists in a steampunk ghost world, mm-hmm. and like well, and also about the expected type of person that your character is in that game like that is so ingrained in the system like you're doing these hard bad things because you are probably a bad person but you're also a very competent person right like there's so many mechanics that just no no you can succeed bad things will happen but you can succeed and that's like that's not the same game as a like you know if you're playing a, a heist as the two villains from home alone who are not competent, <laughs> that is not the same feel as Blades, right? Yeah. Right. Shout out to the Sticky Bandits, the Wet Bandits. <laughs> wet wet Bandits, yeah, yeah. Yes, Wet Bandits. It's holiday time. It's about time for a watch of Home Alone anyway. Ugh, I haven't seen it since childhood. I should I should put that on the list for this month. Hold on. Let me do that. Let <laughs> we me, were, let me I was Home talking Alone about Home Alone with a friend recently, how we're like, yeah, the, the, the show says that it is okay to do extreme violence as long as you're defending property. And we're like, huh. <laughs> Look, you can't discount the power imbalance between a child and two adults, okay? Yeah. <laughs> that also matters. All right. Let me just put Home Alone on my list of movies to watch in December real quick while I play uh, another message from... Actually, M sent in a message. We'll play M's right here. Hello, Dice Explorer. M here. I come to you with The Zone, a game by Raf Diamico and Loving Kaiju. 
very inspired by Annihilation, where you portray a group of investigators going into a weird, dreamy, psychedelic zone. It's literally Annihilation. What I loved about this game was that despite being a, a fun game and an engaging one-shot game, what really drew me towards it was that I could glimpse into what the future of online play could look like because the team built this incredible digital experience for playing where all of your hardware information is on a screen with all the other players. You have a private room. It's all free, which is incredible, at least for the demo. And all of the gameplay elements come together very organically and easily while also being flourished with great visual effects. So it really is a very pleasant experience to play. And I can only hope that more games take this approach in the future or that doing so potentially becomes easier so that you can have these super smooth sessions. Number two is something I'm really looking forward to next year is Blades in the 68 by Tim Diné, which I got to try out since Tim was kind enough to lend me access to a preview. And it's just such a refreshing take on Duskfall. I'm a big Duskfall fan and playing in the same city with all of the major factions and settings still being there, but having to interact with this futuristic 60s style setting was just really, really fun. And it allowed us for some really creative choices on how we chose to portray the future of Duskfall. It's kind of like writing your own sequel to your favorite show. And the type of stories, while still being rooted in the same ideas, are really refreshing to play with because you get a, a lot of new opportunities with how the technology interacts with the pre-established setting. So the playbooks are great, the crew types are excellent, and I really cannot wait for this to be out in some fashion. Evil Hat. Please publish it. <laughs> and that's it from me. Peace. And for an even greater, more packed 2024 on this show. And that's it from me. Peace. And uh, for an even greater, more packed 2024 on this show. So that is all of our picks for favorite games this year. But I wanted to do two more rounds. One for ourselves. We'll get to some stuff we were proud of that we made this year in a second. But before that, I wanted to do a round for game adjacent things that we loved this year. Like what is something like a blog post or an article or a podcast episode or whatever that was exciting for you this year. So Aaron, tell us about yours. I'm going to talk about a comic book. I think the stuff that Shrung was saying about kind of the formalist aspect of games. And if you're not engaging with those Maybe you're not making a brilliant game. And seeing RPGs go through that is really similar to seeing what comics went through in the late 90s and early 2000s with the arrival of webcomics and a lot of smaller indie publishers and stuff like that. I've always been a huge comics fan, and so I wanted to bring a comic called Grog the Frog, The Book of Taurus by Alba BG and Davalorium. It is... I've never seen Adventure Time past, like, gifts on tumblr but i get big adventure times from this it's about an yes. evil frog wizard named grog who is kind of pursuing his own selfish things and gets drawn into this ancient prophecy but the artist alba does lots of really great formalist things with pacing 
and panel size and page structure and bringing in stuff that is almost like character sheet adjacent for these weird characters where you get, who is Grog the Frog? And then there's a picture of him saying, hello there, peasants. And it has his (laughs) info and his likes and his dislikes and his different facial expressions. I think it is, it starts off as kind of a fun, feels like a Gen Z millennial kind of goofy comic and then gets to some emotional depths that you might not expect from a comic about a frog wizard. This is so cute. I'm definitely going to check this out. It's really good. It's published and distributed by Silver Sprocket, who do amazing work publishing a bunch of young, queer, trans cartoonists, indie artists that maybe wouldn't get picked up otherwise, artists from outside of the U.S. I think if you don't know anything about comics and you want to get into them, go to the Silver Sprocket website and just pick three random books and you will be well rewarded by that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this comic is gorgeous. Like, the colors are gorgeous. It Did these people draw for Adventure Time? It is so Adventure Time. I don't know. I can't, like I said, I never saw it. I know there are a lot of other cartoonists who did end up working on Adventure Time. I think these people are, like, young. Like, they yeah. grew up on Adventure Time and just yeah. thought, let's do our own thing. Totally. Yeah. The art is lovely. Yeah, is she beautiful. is such a good artist. She's on Tumblr. She's on Twitter. Alba BG. Go follow her. It's just to wake up in the morning and be like, I'm going to doom scroll Twitter because I hate myself. And then just see one of her drawings in my Twitter Aww. feed is like, oh, I could make something. I could get up and do something cool instead of being a grump in bed. It's really nice. Wonderful comic. Audrey, what did you bring us? Uh, so I picked an article by Lynn Kudega, which uh, not any of the ones you're thinking of, I'm sure, because there was obviously a lot of really, really good reporting done by Lynn this year. But I picked one called Role Playing Games Enter the World of Ballet in a Unique New Performance, because this is something that I had seen because I follow Sam Lee, who created Anamnesis, which is a solo game about being a person who doesn't necessarily remember themselves, who also maybe is a changeling. Very cool game. Definitely check it out. But Sam got commissioned by Ballet Collective, which is like an experimental group in New York City, to write a game. And the game served as like the basis for a ballet that they then performed. Sam has a ton of cool stuff on their TikTok about it. And you should definitely check it out. But also, you know, read the article. It links to all of the relevant stuff. I just thought it was such a cool idea to collaborate in that way in a medium that I don't think games has really touched, like dance. And so so Sam wrote a really very cool game. The current edition of it that was provided to Ballet Collective is up for free, and the full edition will be out next year with a ton of art and additional just supporting rules for if you want to play it solo or with a larger group of people. But uh, the ballet itself is really beautiful. I really enjoy watching dance and ballet performances. And the game is also very fun. Although I haven't gotten to play it yet, I just think it's fun to read and that like I can see the direct influences on the ballet. And so that that's very cool to me, just as a way that games are kind of breaking the orbit of just being in like game spaces. This article has real dancing about architecture vibes to it. Yes. Like someone heard that quote and was like, bet, <laughs> and then did this. And I love to see that. Like the kind of like cross medium smashing up stuff is just always so interesting and fruitful, I think, for both mediums. I'm a, I've am been trying for the past few years to like 
intersect other what are called fine arts. I'm just saying what are called because what makes an art fine. Right. Um, but fine arts and games in different ways. Like I've been trying to do like to my students, like make games based on museum works that we go see and things like that. So when I heard about this, like Sam uh, was a researcher at Dartmouth while I was teaching at Dartmouth. And so when I heard about this, I was really excited. I'm like, ooh. I didn't actually go see the ballet because the dates did not work for me. I think I was out of town. But uh, yeah, it was a very exciting project. The whole thing is up to stream on YouTube, which is nice. So that is something, too, because I know that with fine arts, as they tend to be called, right, there is often a barrier to entry, which is the other reason I was really excited about this, because it's on YouTube, it's free, and that's not necessarily the same as being in like the auditorium, but it is still a way to view this that I wouldn't have otherwise had because it's expensive, it's not local to me, you know, lots of barriers to entry, I think, for fine arts. And so it's nice to see a collaboration like this that is really accessible to everybody. Awesome. Charing, what do we got? I also picked an article. I picked an article in the New York Times by Carrie Blakinger, and I may be getting that wrong. I'm probably getting that wrong. It's called The Dungeons and Dragons Players of Death Row. Um, it came out in August as soon as I got back from my, like, LARP summer. Hot LARP summer. <laughs> it was. It was, a, it, was a, it was a LARP about people going to a house. The haunted house drives them insane and into murder, incest, and madness. So it was kind of hot. But this is a very moving article, I felt. It profiles and talks about death row inmates in the United States, uh, which is a country that still has the death penalty. Many countries have abolished the death penalty. And it talks about the carceral system in the U.S., which is considered by many people to be horrible, me being one of them, and inhumane in many cases, and about how people in death row find kind of purpose and meaning for the remainder of their lives through playing role-playing games. Now, it's specifically Dungeons & Dragons, because that is it is not a lie that this is the world's most popular role-playing game, right? It's big and accessible, accessible in, in a certain regard. But it ultimately, it's about how like storytelling and play uplifts the human spirit. And it's a really, it's kind of a touching piece because Carrie, the author, speaks to many of these death row inmates and, and speaks to their like fellow players and things. And it's really, it was really moving about like, why do we tell stories? Why do we play? How do we form human connections when we play, when we collectively imagine together, right? Uh, it's really lovely and sad, and I would recommend it to anyone, even if you're not interested in games, though. I don't know if you're listening to this podcast or not in that case. <laughs> but, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, send the article to your friends who don't play games, maybe. Because it's a lovely, lovely thing. It also makes you angry about the carceral system in the United States, so which is, I think, an important thing for us to be angry about. The pictures from this article, I remember, are just like beautiful and heartbreaking. I used to volunteer at a bookstore here that also sends books to prisons, mm. and most prisons don't allow hardcover books. Uh, Many prisons don't allow dice because they're related gambling. to gambling. Yeah. Certain writing utensils aren't allowed, and so you, this article has these pictures of you know, we're talking about role-playing games and we're talking about tokens and all this stuff that we have printed. And like, they have often paper and pens and maybe an old soft cover book and they are doing everything else by hand. And so these pictures in this article, like take, keep track of these amazing play artifacts that are like 
lovingly rendered and beautifully done and it is just like you said like so uplifting that people can find this joy in this hobby and also so heartbreaking that like the way they are doing it and the way they are producing these amazing play artifacts are because of this oppressive system that is to most of the world a war crime yeah yeah it's i mean it's a really stark dichotomy right because it's so uplifting and hopeful to see that like storytelling and play are so intrinsic to the human spirit but the circumstances that these people are in are absolutely awful and unethical you know yeah the artifact that i remember from this is the d20 spinner yes. because they're not allowed to have dice they had to make by hand like a, a spinner a randomizer sl- tool, or 20 yeah. slots on it yeah it's the creativity required to figure out how to play this game in this place is amazing and just to echo what everyone else has said under such horrible conditions too and we i mean not to get too into the nitty-gritty but like we think about crime as a breakdown of society right there's one way of thinking about crime is not this person is evil it is that society has failed in some way right and in some yeah. way, we like, well, what better way of rehabilitation or whatever you want to call it, I'm sure I'm not using the right language, than to make people social, right? Like, yeah. play this game together, be social together, reconnect with other humans through imagination, through voicing desire and dreams and goals. And it's so, it's lovely and sad and, yeah, you know. <laughs> I think there's also a piece in this that is so relatable for me this year, especially I, I lost both my grandmothers this year and I've been sort of more acutely aware of my own mortality and the mortality of everyone around me as a result. And the feeling of death is coming for us all. How are we going to spend our time one of the things that we want to do is to spend it in community with each other, telling stories and creating places for us to share together is something I really saw in these people, in myself. Well, I have to follow that. Yeah. Act, but, <laughs> I was going to uh, say, Sam, what's yours? Yeah. <laughs> I, so... So I picked The Ink That Bleeds by Paul Chega, which is this zine essay about the playing of solo games. And Paul is this fairly well-known game designer. Uh, He goes back to the Forge era and before. And he's written this zine about how he thinks solo games are meant to be played or how he gets the most out of solo games. I think he has some strong opinions that will not work for everyone and that I do not always agree with in this, but I do think that the the ideas in it are really interesting and compelling to engage with. So his, one of his big things is to try to unlock your subconscious mind is his goal for you while playing or his goal for himself anyway, while playing these solo games. And he, he really wants people to 
get in touch with their subconscious mind and to play these solo games as what he calls your proximate self, like to play as a version of yourself and to use solo games as a tool for self-reflection and a like way of journaling, a way of exploring your own mind and like what your subconscious is trying to tell you and that you may or may not be able to hear for yourself in just your day-to-day -day life. And I started getting into solo games this year because I'm planning an episode on solo games and started like researching for it by like playing a bunch of solo games. And I picked this up somewhere in the middle of that. And it really made clear for me that solo games as an activity are so fundamentally different from other like group RPGs that like playing them by yourself as an experience to understand yourself is just such a completely different medium than playing collective RPGs with other people, trying to like share something together, to communicate about yourself with other people, to tell a story together. It's just a completely different goal. And that that's probably a, a more useful or more compelling, at least for me, way to think about solo games as this tool of self-exploration rather than a tool of trying to tell a story, but I'm missing the other people to help me do it. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be really curious to hear, Audrey, if you've read this and if you have opinions I, about I it. I was about to call out Audrey and be like, please tell I, us about this and tarot and how you feel about it. I haven't that. actually read this yet, and it is on my list of things to read. I think that, I mean, I 100% agree that solo games are less about the story that you're telling and more about your own reactions to the game, the content of the game, and what the creator of the game wants you to think about. I the biggest disparity I think that I can come up with in games that I've played this year is that I was playing Village Witch by Elliot Silvarian and that's a game that is like ripe to be like a Ghibli knockoff or to play a very classical Baba Yaga type character or like witch in training type character and I immediately was like yeah, no. So my witch lives in the magical weird west and locomotive engines can be feral here. And so it's like there's a lot of prescriptiveness, I think, in journaling games, especially when we talk about solo RPGs, where because there are things that are assumed about the setting or the genre that the game is written in, there's like already these preconceived notions that it's really easy to direct ourselves towards. And then the question you ask yourself is, are, are you okay being directed towards those things? And if so, what exercise or what purpose is that serving for you? Because sometimes I do go into a game and I lean really hard into the the genre that it's presenting me with. And it's because I'm in a writing rut and I just need to write, you know, and it doesn't need to be yeah. original and it doesn't need to be deep. It just needs to be words on the page. And there are other times where I go into a game and I'm like, well, how can I make this more fun for myself? Like, what am I going to do to get the most out of this? Or like, mm. how can I get so invested in this that the characters will start to surprise me? And that's really my ultimate goal with soloing games, journaling games specifically. I like to get really invested in the story in a way that makes it feel alive because then it does take away some of that like FOMO of I wish that I was playing with other people. So yeah, I would be really, really interested to actually get my hands on this zine and kind of compare the experiences that I've had with his experiences. I want to just shout out a couple other weird things that like Paul has in this zine. Like he really encourages people to write in dialogue, which I think yes. is really interesting. And what he sees as like a way of accessing those subconscious voices or thoughts that you might have by putting them in the mouth of quote unquote other characters. But he also 
really loves the idea of playing as the same character in more than one solo game at the same time. So you sort of like take one turn in I one game. I need to get this zine because I do that also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he would love to hear from you too, I'm sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the other thing about this zine is that Paul is kind of persnickety in some ways and like has refused to publish a digital edition of this so the only way to get it is to actually order the zine from his site there was an excerpt published on the indie game reading blog that i'll link in the show notes but yeah he wants you to have that tactile experience of getting the zine in the mail and opening it up and reading it and the whole thing is it's an experience and again i don't agree with everything that he says in it i'm actually I'm halfway through writing a piece that will come out next year with the solo game episode when I record it about the ways in which I disagree with him. Mm. But yeah, but eat I, shit, Paul. I think it's really, really interesting to read and to sort of get his perspective on playing these games. Mm. Mm. All right. So here's here's one last friend of the pod, as it were. Hi, I'm Nova, also known as Idol Cartulary. And Sam asked me to talk about my favorite RPG adjacent thing this year. I was having trouble sorting the wheat from the chaff because there's just so much wheat, you know, and then I realized that actually my favorite thing this year was a trend rather than a game or a module. Amanda P got me into it, and it's mindfully drawing fantasy role-playing game maps. A few of us share our mindfulness maps with each other on a Discord. I started keeping screenshots of maps I think are pretty, bought a notebook and a few pens, and I keep them in a few places I frequent. And when I need some space or have spare time, rather than doom scroll. I draw a map of a dungeon, or a cave, or a town, or a building. For me, there's a simplicity of scale, and lots of small things like stippling or cross-hatching that just really work to make it very mindful in a way that meditation or coloring in, or other suggested mindful activities don't. And if I'm doing it at home, I do it on my iPad, and then I've turned it into a side hustle, and a reward for my Patreon backers called Dungeons Regularly, a little zine of pretty maps that anyone can use in their publications if they need to. So, my favorite trend of the year, mindfulness map drawing. Thank you, additional friend of the pod. So we're going to end our roundtable here with a thing from each of us that we are proud of having made this year. So Aaron, apart from the many great episodes of RTFM, or maybe not apart from, what is something that you are yeah, really proud of? Yeah, that's all I was going to say. I don't know. <laughs> I started this podcast at the height of the pandemic as a way to hang out and to read all the RPG books that I have. And I think we have like 50 main feed episodes now. And a bunch more on the Patreon. It's called RTFM, RTFMcast.com. Max is game designer and also a fellow games scholar teaching, I think, at the University of Toronto. And so come listen to us talk about games. I'm the boring one. So if you've been bored here with me, uh, Max is much funnier and more active. Max has strong opinions. If you yeah. also want those. I love Max's strong opinions. And I think strong arms as well. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So don't that's get true. in a fight. <laughs> no, that's it. And also, all this year, I've been working on a game called Speed Rune, which is a rules light ancient world fantasy RPG. And I'm doing a big jam like through the new year to make weird stuff for this game. And so if you want to make a game inspired by my favorite fantasy writer, Tanith Lee, or a uh, terrible video game that I can't stop playing Skyrim or anything weird and old like that. Check that out. That's in the RTFM Discord as well. Audrey, what are you proud of? So this year was kind of like my first year really writing for something that wasn't 5e. I wrote 5e sci-fi stuff for like four years. 
And then kind of end of last year was like, nope, I'm going to do some other stuff. And recently wrote a game with my friend Zeb. It's called Behold a Game. And it's very tongue in cheek and about arguing what is a game with like the stipulations of ancient philosophers on there. So so it's free. It's a single page front and back game. Just very tongue in cheek. And we wrote it in like 12 hours. And I am pretty thrilled with it. It's like, I find often that writing comedy is a thing that I enjoy more than writing serious works and that comes easier to me, but also is the thing that falls apart the easiest. So I was really proud of this one because I do think that it holds up and it was entirely based on like me shitposting. So it's a fun one. I hadn't seen this before. This looks so rad. (laughs) This is so cool. It's so silly and so fun. And it was just kind of like I had spent the year writing various games and writing hacks for various games and talking with lots of cool people, including in the Dice Exploder Discord, about what makes different types of games and the history of the tabletop hobby and things like that. And um, it just kind of culminated in that. (laughs) This rules. I I can't wait to read this. (laughs) Hell yeah. You have to let me know what you think. All right, uh, Sharing, what do we got? This is a year of doing a bunch of new things, which I'm um, so there are a lot that I'm proud of. For example, I swam in the Gay Olympics this year, oh, which I'm hell like, yeah. super proud of and stuff, right? But the game rate thing I'm very proud of, and this is going to sound extremely big headed, <laughs> is that I won my first three Emmy Awards this year. Ooh, uh, hell yeah. which, give, which, which brings me up to seven major game design awards throughout my career, which makes me very excited. Thanks. I know, it sounds very big-headed. I'm like, look at me winning awards. But no, like, but that's like, so I cool. Go go. We're in the proud of part of the show. Like this right, is what. Right. Yeah. I find a lot of validation winning awards because you know artists yeah. always need validation. <laughs> yeah. So I won. I was on the team that designed Avatar Legends, the role-playing game based on Avatar: The Last Airbender, the beloved children's TV show. And we won two awards for that. We won gold for best rules and best family game. And then I'm extra proud because the judges spotlight award I feel is very cool for a game I wrote for, which is Moonlight on Roseville Beach with Richard Ruane as the main designer. And it's a very gay game about supernatural urban fantasy on Fire Island. Sorry, on Roseville Beach. If you like Brindlewood Bay, that's the game for you because it's Brindlewood Bay, but very (laughs) queer. So it's extremely queer. It doesn't have the same mystery mechanics if no. you're looking at Brindlewood Bay from a mechanics standpoint. But you could always just pull those in if you wanted them. Like Moonlight yeah, on Roseville go. Beach is like there are rules, but there's a more setting it's than so rules rad. from my yeah, recollection. Yeah. It's really cool. And Richard did such a good job working with a layout designer to make a brilliant looking book. When oh, I first it looks saw like it. an old pulp novel. Yes. It's yes. So good. And the interiors, when I first saw the, you know, he showed us the preprint version. We were all like, oh my God, this is so gorgeous. I also get royalties from both those games. So wink, wink. Hey. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually, I mean, it sounds silly, but I am very proud of winning this. I've never won any before. I won three this year. Yeah. It's, it, it made me very happy. Too. It doesn't sound silly at all. Like it's exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So. I was going to say my thing here, and then actually one of the messages from a friend of the show came in as the same thing that I was going to be proud of. So I'm going to play it here from Mo Poplar, who was my rideshare up to Big Bad Con. I remember when I was telling my 
game design buddy, we should do a podcast where we just talk about all, all the game mechanics. And he said, you know, nobody would be interested in that. I said, this is all we do. Talk about game mechanics. And then I stumbled upon Dice Exploder. And I get to hear the most awesome people having amazing conversations about all the crunchy bits in RPGs. And I love it. Oh, so I, I don't know. I'm like self-conscious. Like, what am I, what am I going to say? Like, I made an amazing podcast this year. This thing fucking rules. I'm so proud of it. I'm so good at making podcasts like to just toot my own horn in this section. Like, I'll toot part your of horn, the reason, Sam. Thanks, sharing. Part of the reason I wanted to make this podcast in the first place was I had all these opinions about how podcasts should be made. And I wanted to prove that they were right. <laughs> and they all were. And I'm very validated professionally. And I'm just so proud of this show. I'm so proud of the Discord community, too. Like, I'm really, really happy with how that Discord feels right now. Although, if you aren't, please DM me and let me know so I can help make changes. But really, this has just been such a such a wonderful year for me in the RPG world. And a huge part of that has been because of this podcast. So, yeah. Thanks to all of you for being here, and thanks to everyone so much for listening. I say it at the end of every episode, but like more people will be listening right now than normal, so thank you truly for listening. Where can we find everyone? Aaron? The podcast is rtfmcast.com. Twitter is dying. Burn it down. Go listen to my podcast. Audrey? Uh, you can find me on Tumblr and Itch if you search for Lady Tabletop. That's me. I host Alone at the Table, which is a solo podcast where I do actual plays of solo games and then talk about what I thought worked and didn't work. You can find that at moonshotpods.com. That's the network that I'm part of. Sharing. And I'm on most social media as Sharon Biswas. I'm still kind of lurking on Twitter, even though it's dying. I'm on Blue Sky now more a bit and on Instagram. My itch, astrolingus.itch.io. You'll also find links to Honey and Hot Wax there, which is published by Pelgrane Press. And oh, and watch out, I have a book coming out next year called The Iron Below Remembers. Watch out for that. Hell yeah. All right. Well, as always, you can find me on all the social platforms at S. Dunnewald, including Itch, where you can find my games. You can come join the Dice Exploder Discord, as I mentioned. Come and talk about the show. Our logo was designed by Sporgaree, and our theme song is Sunset Bridge by Purely Gray. Thanks again, truly, to all of you for listening. Thanks to Aaron, to Audrey, and to Sharang, whose name I will never be able to pronounce. I'm too white for it. I'm so sorry. I'm we'll foreign. Out eventually. <laughs> You're foreign. I don't know what to do about it. And uh, thanks. We'll see you all next year. <laughs>